initially, actually, my idea was, you know, startups are hard. I don't know if I want to really do a startup on this. I wonder, I wonder, can I get someone at Amazon or Google or Microsoft to sort of like, you know, pony up the cash to, to do this at, at one of the big clouds? And those conversations went okay, but it didn't seem like they were, they were going anywhere interesting. So in, instead, I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm going to, going to raise money for this. And so I spent some time, you know, started, you know, raising money. So eventually raised like three and a half million to do this. And in this time, all I had was 800 lines of Python and a thousand lines of Elm. That was the entire product. I'm Paul Bigger. I'm founder and CEO of Dark, darklang.com. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today, how Paul Bigger built the one-stop shop to remove the complexities from building modern-day apps. All this and more on Code Story. Paul Bigger was born in Dublin, Ireland, living there most of his life. When he was young, his dad had a couple of computers where Paul could program in BASIC and Logo. In addition to these early introductions, he was into building his own machines and tweaking their hardware settings to get the most optimal performance out of them. He completed his CS undergrad along with his PhD before heading off to Silicon Valley to do the tech startup thing. He currently lives in New York. And during the pandemic, his primary activity outside of tech and entrepreneurship is taking walks with friends. In a past venture, he was the founder of CircleCI, the very popular continuous integration tool for engineering teams. Building on his successes here, he started to look at how difficult it was to deploy code, to do infrastructure, to write code, how teams interact, and many other friction points for the SDLC. He set out to remove the complexities of how we build apps today. This is the creation story of Dark. So Dark is a programming language combined with an editor, combined with infrastructure. So you use our hosted platform, you write code in, in our app in the browser, and you write in our proprietary language. Okay, so if I've explained it like that, it sounds terrible. It's like, why would anyone want to do this? So let me, let, let, let me go a little bit to, to the backstory and, and, and why. What, what Dark is intended to be is a way of creating backend services that don't have all of the complexity of how we build apps today. So it started from this idea of like looking at how complicated it was to deploy code, to do infrastructure, to write code, to, you know, uh, and, and much more than that, you know, how to, uh, how teams interact, how maintenance on software teams works, even, even, you know, how continuous delivery, like continuous delivery is like a key part of it. And so it looked at basically made a giant list of all of the problems. There's this phrase, accidental complexity. So uh, you can divide complexity into essential complexity, which is, you know, a core part of what you're trying to do for your business or whatever. And then accidental complexity is all the bullshit you have to deal with along the way. You know, made, made this huge list and tried to classify everything into is it accidental complexity or is it essential complexity? And then basically invented a solution to writing backend software or cloud software that didn't have any of that complexity. And that's that's what led me to this sort of like integrated, uh, you know, clearly we're hosting the infrastructure for you. That's, you know, that, 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 that's one large thing off your mind. But how do you get 
to the, the deployment time down to like zero time at all. You know, that, that's the fastest thing you can, you can deploy code. So how do, how, do you, how do you do that? And, and we designed a language and an editor around sort of safely creating code that's sort of in production, but in a, in a safe way. Um, and, and that's how we ended up with like all the three things like tied together. Tell me about the MVP. I guess we could call it that. I, I don't know what what you'd call it when you're when you're building a language, building a product like this, um, which is really interesting. But tell me about that MVP. How long it took to build, and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. It, it took a while. So I initially started the. I initially came up with the idea, or let's say, decided that I was going to solve this in in late 2016. And the idea had sort of been brewing in my head for several years. And, and the, the idea that I had, the, the thought that I had for how to solve this was it was a language that was like a visual language with sort of a, you know, a graph and sort of nodes and edges in, in that graph. And so I built a prototype of a blog and the blog fit, you know, basically in, in one like small image. I built a prototype in, in Python on the back end and Elm on the front end and used that to sort of demo it. And, and it worked and, you know, it, it, it actually did what it was supposed to do. Initially, actually, my idea was, you know, startups are hard. I don't know if I want to really do a startup on this. I wonder, I wonder, can I get someone at Amazon or Google or Microsoft to sort of like, you know, pony up the cash to, to do this at, at one of the big clouds? And those conversations went okay, but it didn't seem like they were they were going anywhere interesting. So in, instead, I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm gonna gonna raise money for this. And so I spent some time, you know, started you know raising money. So eventually, we raised like three and a half million to do this. And in this time, all I had was 800 lines of Python and a thousand lines of Elm. That was the entire product. And then it came time to actually you know, start to build it. It was August 20, 2017, but by the time we really started to build the thing. Spent a couple of months just like trying to create this like good way of, of creating software. And we, we had a couple of like different challenges. It's like, all right, you know, suppose that someone's writing a Caesar cipher, which is like a, the way that, that children like do encryption. You know, you switch the letter A for M, that sort of thing. So, all right, you know, can we give someone, you know, a question and, you know, can a user come in, we give them a question and then they write the code to solve this if we like give them the algorithm. It wasn't immediately obvious that we needed to give them the algorithm, but it turns out that no one knows how to do modular arithmetic. So we were, we were like way off in our, in our expectations of, of what code people would, would know how to do. But we gave people the algorithm. You know, it was it was a real challenge. And it's just like this this idea of writing nodes and edges, it was just like really complicated for people. Even though we had like visual programming in there and we showed people the intermediate outputs of their computation so far. And it just wasn't, wasn't really working. And we tried a bunch of different ways of sort of representing this. We started uh, getting people to write FizzBuzz in it. So FizzBuzz is this like interview challenge that, that everyone got asked to do in like the, the 2000s. Uh, and it's basically, you know, list out 100 numbers. And if they're divisible by three, write Fizz. If it's, they're divisible by five, write Buzz. If they're divisible by three and five, write FizzBuzz. Uh, and otherwise, write the number. 
So there's a calculation in there that that's basically, you know, if I modulo three equals zero and you know, very simple uh, arithmetic, but in our sort of nodes and edges language, just that that, that was a really difficult challenge to, to get someone to like write that and, and to build it out between sort of infix notation and like, you know, people being new to this. So p- p- people eventually sometimes got it done and the, the feedback was just terrible. It's just like, you cannot write like this. And so we, we decided to ditch that, that concept and instead tried to design the, the core ideas that we had behind Dark and put them into something that looked a little bit more like traditional code, that looked like, you know, the sort of like textual code. And so that was that was the next few months, and it was trying to sort of like take these concepts. So w- w- one of the concepts was we didn't want a parser. We believe that parsers cause syntax errors. Um, and so can you write code in such a way that there that you cannot have a parser, or that that you don't need a parser? And, and so we we have a way to do that. It's called a structured editor. And we came up with a way, basically, of, of the structured editor feeling a lot more like writing code. You know, you're writing roughly the same language, but but it actually looks a lot more like code. And with that, we were able to get people to write some code. We were able to write programs that, that, that did things. And so that was sort of the first point that we realized, okay, you know, we're, we, we've got our, our real MVP now. With any MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs about, you know, I'm going to do things one way, um, and it's going, you know, it's going to hurt in the short term, but it's going to be better because we're going to get it done faster, or technical debt or things like that. So, you touched on a few of them, but dive into them a little more. What sort of decisions and trade-offs did you have to make in the short term, and how did you cope with them? There was always the technical debt decision. the The initial version was written in Python. And we realized that Python was not a good language for the type of like massive experimenting that we were that we were going to do. And so we switched to this language called OCaml, which is a statically typed functional language. And statically typed functional languages are amazing for writing programming languages. The, the static typing where a compiler is sort of like telling you when you get code wrong really allowed a huge amount of refactoring, which, which is what we needed to do a lot in the early days. We refactored a huge amount. We, you know, we, we would write something, we'd realize it was all wrong. We, we, you know, we'd completely change a lot of implementations. And so that that was like one of the major ways that we handled that, that sort of complexity, but by having a statically typed functional language. Other things we did is that we just assumed that we were going to pile on the technical debt, at least until until MVP. And we thought until product market fit, but that's that's another story for later. But um, yeah, we, we, we just took on a lot of debt and you know some of it is still being paid off. Well then, so you've got your MVP, right? And you start to progress the product. How did you, how did you go about that process of progressing and maturing the product? And then how did you go about building your roadmap and figuring out, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or address with Darklang? At the start, we had a couple of example applications that we wanted to build. One is called like the real world app, but it's basically a, a medium clone. Um, and we we were able to write you know a medium clone, and, and so it's like okay, you know this this actually works now, even though it was, it was horrendous, but it you know sort of worked. Our our next goal was we need to support somebody who's not us being able to build an application here, 
and we we you know reached around for startups that wanted to do it but it was, it was a very big risk we didn't really know how to manage that risk and eventually came up with the idea that we would pay someone to do this and we we, we posted a, you know a, not exactly a job ad but we we said you know we will pay you three thousand dollars a month to write your application in dark and the idea was you're a startup, you're already writing your application in something, you know, perhaps you're bootstrapped and $3,000 would help you out during the, the bootstrapping phase. That actually got us about 30 applications and maybe two of them were like fairly appropriate. And so we, we went with this guy, with this guy, Daniel, uh, and he built this SaaS app for managing janitorial supplies that he that he had an existing customer base in an adjacent product and it just like connected to that. And so he came into our office every day and there were weeks at a time where he couldn't actually code in it because, you know, we, we had to redo some fundamental part of like how something scaled or re-architect a key part of things. But, you know, for the most part, it was just, you know, him coming to the office and we worked on the thing. And whenever he had problems, we worked to solve them. So I'd like to switch to team. How do you go about building a team? You know, what do you look for in these people to indicate that they're the right people to join you and the winning horses to join you? Honestly, I'm not sure that there's any particular indicators that you can use. I I think a lot of the indicators that we've traditionally used as an industry uh, have been really bad. You know, like, did they go to an elite school or or something like that? I I don't think that they're they're very good. You know, for the most part, we want to see, can people code and can we spend time with them? And I think those are the, those are the most important things. The way we tend to, to look for that, we have an interesting interview process, actually. The, the first interview is basically getting a list of everything that they say they know how to do. So, you know, here's the areas that, that we care about. We care about, you know, being able to do front end. We care about being able to do back end. We care about compilers. We care about functional languages, you know, care about distributed systems. And you don't expect it to know all those things like that. That, that, that would be ludicrous. We, we just want a list, you know, in, in the area of front end. Are you good? Are you bad? Is this your area of expertise? Is it not? And, and we go through the, the, the list of, of, of six techs and, you know, often people, you know, have one that, that they're really the expert in. And so what we're looking for is the thing that this person is good at. Is that what our team needs? And are they good at it in a way that, that the team needs? And then we do a one day on-site interview, which we pay people for. We, we don't believe in wasting people's time. So we, we, we have a, a standard $500 stipend that, that we pay to um, you to, to do the, the, the on-site. You know, through the course of that, it's you know, making sure, you know, do, do you work well with, uh, with the team? You know, the sort of thing that, that comes up is like, oh, this person it was actually like really condescending to the female engineers. Hmm, that's a no. That's the sort of thing that that like we fan, but like you know we we haven't got any like silver bullets for for how for how we hire people. I think. Did you ever have anybody abusing the the stipend, or was it was it not not known to them before they accepted the interview? We we, we never had anyone anyone abusing it at all. You know, I I think I think for people who are going for for the kind of jobs that we're doing, you know, there's. You know, it, t- it takes a lot to, to have the skills to, to be able to do that. And, and you know, the I, I don't think that the $500 is like 
is like a financially meaningful thing for anyone. Um, and of course, we, we also pay for them to, you know, fly out and, and put up their, their hotel and, and all that sort of thing on top of the $500. Um, but I, th- I think it's, it's mostly a, um, a token to indicate we, we are not here to waste your time. So I usually ask about scalability. So I'm curious how, you know, where you'll take this question, but did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you kind of fighting this as you grow? We're fighting it as we grow. We, we've we definitely made some choices where it might've been better to, to sort of plan the scalability in advance. So for example, we, um, uh, we, we, we used some product that, that Google had, uh, we, we use Google Cloud. We, we use like one of their products that's like vaguely Docker on on kind of one machine. And that's the sort of thing where, where we might have been better to like spend a day learning Kubernetes because eventually we went to Kubernetes and then we had to do like a migration. And, and so there was a, you know, a bunch of time wasted there. But for the most part, we're believers in we actually don't know what problems we're going to have. We don't know how to solve them in advance. So, you know, just do do the thing that works today and, and we can figure it out later. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built with Dark, what are you most proud of? When we started Dark, and in particular, you know, I'm pitching all these people about the, the technical and product vision. And most of them say that is impossible. Both technologists, you know, really good engineers and you know investors you know i'm telling them we're going to build this technology where you deploy in zero seconds they're like nope that cannot work people will not be able to code like that it just isn't possible to build and so you know even though today we're we're pre-product market fit some of the things that people said are are not possible those were those were our first proof points. You know, we, we we proved to ourselves that these are possible, and I think that was like that was a thing that just a lot of people thought was was not going to happen. So let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Oh man, we we've made we've made plenty of mistakes. Mistakes mistakes all over the place. You know, we're 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 four years in and we haven't got product market fit. I get I guess that's that's probably the major the major situation um, and I don't know if that's is it a mistake I mean that lots of mistakes contributed to this but we definitely bit off a lot more than we could chew and we did that intentionally we just we just thought that it would be easier to sort of like get through it so yeah the the building an editor building a programming language building infrastructure all at the same time is quite a lot I'm struggling to to define it as a mistake, but it's like it's definitely the largest challenge that we that we had, and and, and the one that that you know so far has not been overcome. Sure, no, that makes sense. You're you're tackling a huge problem. Is it? It wasn't where you were taking a bite out of the elephant one at a time, or one bite at a time. You were eating the elephant one bite at a time. You were just trying to eat it, eat it all at once. Yeah, and 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 we knew that. Um, I, I think that the. The speculation I had at the start was the way that the industry works is that everyone makes an incremental solution. The problem is actually the incremental solution. It's that we just keep adding technologies to the amount of things that people need to know. And that the only way to be able to actually remove complexity 
is to remove technologies, remove products, remove steps from, from the whole thing. And to do that, we need to build all of it. We expected that by building all of it, we don't have to integrate with anything else. So it's not like, you know, if you're building VS Code, right, your popular editor, you have to have support for every language that's out there. And you also have to have support for a ton of like editing modes and all of those intersect and it's complicated. We're like, okay, well, we only need, you know, one editor to work for one language to deploy to one thing. You know, there there's not a hundred thousand tools or a hundred thousand different combinations of tools that, that we need to deal with. There's just one. And that really, really did help, but not not nearly as much as we thought. So what does the future look like for the product and for your team? So hopefully the, the future looks like uh, product market fit. The team at the moment is, is down to just me. You know, we have still quite quite a bit of money. So really what I'm working on at the moment is like figuring out the best way to sort of like leverage that to get our way to product market fit. I think we know what that needs to look like, but there's a lot of, we, we, we built up a large amount of technical debt and a bunch of it, it turned out was in our way of getting to product market fit. So there's the sort of like fixing a good amount of technical debt and then there's adding the features, uh, primarily a package manager, uh, that we need to to get to product market fit. I think that like those are, those are like the main thing. But you know, every part of it has to be. Yeah, every part of of dark, you know, at the moment is in maybe an alpha state, and so that there's also a large amount of of trying to like figure out an ordering so that you know, is it okay that this particular thing is in an alpha state or does the does the fact that it's in an alpha state actually prevent people from getting into the product and or or believing that the product is good those are the kind of trade-offs that, that I'm dealing with apart from the actual like product features required to to get to um to product market fit So we, we talked about a mistake, but maybe a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? I think we'd hire a little bit more slowly. We, we had the company at, at 10 people um, in July, or uh, a little before July last year. Um, and I think we, we overhired and overspent. I think that we could have gotten much further with a um, with a smaller team, and sort of like the the overhead of having a team, you know, became it became more more inefficient as as the team grew. So I think that was that was sort of like one one mistake. We we sort of spent a lot on management overhead, you know, had had a lot of people involved in product decisions. I think one of the other one of the other mistakes is sort of like a cultural mistake that we made where we sort of had these values that we were that we were telling our team you know the, these are our values and they, they actually weren't compatible with with how I like to build things so I think you know the sort of hired people in for something and then that actually wasn't wasn't how it was this all sounds very vague but I'll, I'll be more specific I have a very concrete vision for what dark is going to be that's what we're building 
and there there is like lots of room for 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 people to solve you know many of the of the smaller issues within that but like you know it really has to fit in with with what i'm building and that that's not how everyone likes to work and that's also not how we were pitching the team on on how the company worked and i think that 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 led to that that led to a lot of problems with with, with the team when we had the team Last question, Paul. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? When I talk to um, to sort of younger entrepreneurs, I tend to ask them a lot of questions uh, and I tend to really try to understand what it is that they're doing mostly to see if it's consistent to see if it's like internally consistent so you know an, an, an obvious example is someone who's building a startup that needs a huge amount of money and they're not in a position to be able to like raise a huge amount of money i'm usually the person who tells entrepreneurs that like they're really fucking it up and often i'm the first person to ever tell an entrepreneur that they're really fucking it up and i think that that's like the value added service that i give to the younger entrepreneurs Usually, usually it's very helpful for them to hear this. And often what I tell them is like, you know, stop building that, that consumer product and, and uh, start building a nice you know, B2B or something instead. Things that, are, things that are easier to bring to market and things that are easier to, um, uh, to see, succeed at as a first time entrepreneur. So I guess, you know, what I tell them is, is very context specific, but it's usually the thing that you're building is much wrong in some way for the attributes that you have as a founder got it that's interesting advice paul thank you for being on the show today thank you for telling me the creation story of dark yeah thank you this has been great and this concludes another chapter of coat story code story is hosted and produced by noah laphart be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. big money on everything for your next project at menards spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools they're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and uv protection say big on suncast storage sheds view our selection of suncast products today in store and on menards.com save big